All right, we are in Ezekiel chapter 25. If you'd like to follow along, you can open your Bible there. Ezekiel chapter 25, verses 1 through 17. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez says his country and Syria both view the United States and Israel as enemies. He made the remark Sunday, June 27, as Syrian President Bashar Assad concluded a visit to Venezuela. Chavez said, and I quote, We have common enemies, describing them as, quote, the Yankee Empire and the genocidal state of Israel. Personally, I'm an Angels fan, but uh, anyway. Also on Sunday, Israeli media reported that Turkish authorities banned an Israeli plane with 100 military and civilian officials on board from entering Turkish airspace. The officials were reportedly heading to Poland to visit the Auschwitz concentration camp. Same day, Northern California, hundreds of pro-Palestinian demonstrators gathered at the port of Oakland before dawn in a bid to prevent an Israeli cargo ship from unloading for the day. More than 500 people showed up about 5.30 a.m. to begin the protest, according to police estimates. By around 10 a.m., the crowd dispersed, but about 200 protesters returned in the afternoon when the second shift of dock workers were scheduled to come. Some workers showed up for the morning shift, but virtually none did for the second. All agreed to not unload the ship or cross the picket lines. uh, Then there's this headline from Amsterdam, Fake Jews to Fight Anti-Semitism. And here's some excerpts from an article. A reported increase in anti-Semitism and harassment in Amsterdam has Dutch authorities considering an unusual solution using decoy Jews to fight hate crimes. Police officers would go undercover in yarmulkes, roaming the streets in Semitic drag. That's what it says. To suss out haters and harassers. I want to start using the word sus a little bit more, don't you? That's our word of the night. So Chavez and Assad and the Turks, the folks in Oakland and in Amsterdam, all of them might want to think about this quote from Bible scholar Charles Lee Feinberg, describing what has happened to those who mistreat the Jews. He said, and I quote, The pages of history are strewn with the wreckage of nations who, though great in the eyes and counsels of the world, incurred the just wrath of an outraged God. We're going to get a few actual examples to point to in chapter 25 of Ezekiel, namely Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. How would you pronounce that? The Philistines, Philistia, Philistia? How do we want to pronounce that? I'll, I'll just go with your best pronunciation. Philistia, does that work? Okay. I'm, that's one of those words I have trouble with. Philistia. In fact, chapters 25 through 32 measure out God's judgment against seven nations in relation to their dealings with his elect nation. In addition to the four nations I just mentioned, we'll encounter Tyre and Sidon and Egypt. Israel is at the very heart of God's plan for human history. They are God's special people, his elect nation. How you treat them is going to determine how you are treated by God. That applies both now and in the future. Commenting on his judgment of the nations after his second coming, Jesus indicated that he would measure the nations by how they responded to the Jews while they were being persecuted 
during the Great Tribulation, especially the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. All of this is a lesson the United States needs to heed, especially at a time when U.S.-Israeli relations are deteriorating on account of new, more neutral policies that our current administration has adopted towards Israel. And so let's take a look at the text, beginning with uh, the Ammonites in, uh, in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, Hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, Aha! against my sanctuary when it was profaned and against the land of Israel when it was desolate and against the house of Judah when they went into captivity. Indeed, therefore, I will deliver you as a possession to the men of the east and they shall set their encampments among you and make their dwellings among you. They shall eat your fruit, drink your milk. And I will make Rabbah a stable for camels and Ammon a resting place for flocks. Then you shall know I am the Lord." For thus says the Lord God, because you clapped your hands, stamped your feet, and rejoiced in heart with all your disdain for the land of Israel, indeed, therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I will cut you off from the peoples and I will cause you to perish from the countries. I will destroy you and you shall know that I am the Lord. At the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his daughters fled. Genesis 19 states both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father after getting him drunk. The firstborn gave birth to a son and named him uh, Moab. He is the father of the Moabites. The younger also gave birth to a son and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites. And so there was definitely bad blood between the Ammonites and the Israelites as far back as the Exodus. The Ammonites did not allow the Israelites passage through their lands and for this reason they were excluded from the family of God for ten generations. That's Deuteronomy 23. In New Testament times, the Ammonites were still a thorn in the side of Israel. The Pharisees were very concerned with the large number of mixed marriages between Hebrews, Moabites, Ammonites, according, uh, according to one guy, Justin Martyr. At one point, a law in the Mishnah states, Ammonite men are excluded but women can be admitted to the Jewish community. And so there's just a lot of history, obviously, between the Ammonites and the Israelites. After the Babylonian armies profaned God's sanctuary and left the land desolate, they said, Aha! and clapped their hands and stamped their feet and rejoiced in their heart against the Jews. And so they celebrated, but it would be short-lived. Either the Babylonians or some other eastern nomadic tribes or some combination would come and destroy them, and they did. Now, the major teaching of this passage that we're in, of these chapters, is to see God's dealings with nations in regard to how they treated Israel. And um, that, I think that's an important teaching for the last days in which we live. Uh, I, I, I think, uh, you know, generally speaking, people in the world think, well, you know, Israel's a nation, Israel causes a lot of problems in the world. Uh, You know, some people are more sympathetic or less sympathetic to Israel, but I don't think the average person still has the fundamental understanding that God is doing something with Israel. I think I told you years ago, uh, it was probably during the Six-Day War, uh, as it was being reported on television. I remember my father, who is by no means a deeply spiritual man, uh, he's a non-practicing Catholic, but at that time he... uh, 
had kind of the cultural mentality to say that you better not mess with Israel because they are God's people. And there, there used to be kind of a just common understanding among people in general that there was something going on with the Jews. I, I think that's largely been lost in our modern society and Israel is more or less just a thorn in the flesh of so many people. Uh, and so it's a major teaching and an important teaching that, that people realize that, that there is a God, that Israel is his elect nation, and that he does have a plan for them throughout history. And a lot of what is unfolding in history, even today, has to do with the fulfillment of that plan. In fact, as I tell you on Sunday mornings, and as you're aware, the rebirth of the nation of Israel in their land is the most incredible fulfillment of Bible prophecy, uh, maybe of all time, because Israel is, is one of the key... Uh, themes in the Bible. Uh, and, you know, there, May 14, 1948, Israel becomes a nation again in fulfillment of many prophecies thousands of years old. Uh, and so it's a big deal how uh, nations treat the nation of Israel. At the same time, having said all that, I still think we can glean some personal application along the way if we're careful uh, and don't go too far out of bounds. Now, in the case of Ammon, I think the expression aha is a key to application. It was as if they were saying, see, I told you so. They are getting what they deserve. The Ammonites understood the grace of God, or excuse me, misunderstood the grace of God in his dealing with his elect nation. Israel wasn't getting what they deserve from an impartial judge so much as they were being disciplined by a loving father. And so the Ammonites were saying, look, aha, finally, they're getting what they deserve. They absolutely deserve to be treated like that and overrun by the Babylonians. And they were excited about the fact that these distant relatives of them who they had this continual uh, conflict with, they were excited that they were being destroyed. We can be prone to see God as a judge, prone to rush to judgment ourselves. I think it's part of our flesh. Not everybody is like this, but a lot of us just, uh, we have a tendency to look at something and it's human nature to think if something bad is happening to somebody or they're in trouble, that they probably deserve it. Uh, they probably brought it on themselves. Uh, they, you know, uh, maybe we should help them, maybe we shouldn't, but you know, they're probably in a place of their own making. Instead, we must portray the Lord as a loving Father who disciplines when He must. Especially as we look upon our brothers and sisters in the Lord, we want to be those that extend grace, always giving them what they don't deserve. Uh, and, and so we need to be careful. We don't want to be like the Ammonites among our brothers or even among non-believers and think that they're always getting what they deserve. After all, we're, uh, we're thankful for the grace of God, getting what we don't deserve and not getting what we deserve. That's what being a Christian is all about. And, and we should have that heart towards others wanting to see them minister to by the grace of God. Uh, not to say people aren't making mistakes, don't deserve judgment, that they aren't falling into uh, problems of their own making. Uh, that may all be true, but our attitude toward that ought to be above that. We should rise above that and try to minister the grace of God to people. Jesus condescended to come from heaven to earth uh, God in human flesh to live among us and walk among us and, and minister among us. Uh, you know, people who are unlovable and unlovely and, and uh, outcasts and 
uh, all these types of people, people who the Jewish society didn't even want to have anything to do with. He touched lepers. There was always a discrepancy. You know, you weren't supposed to touch a leper, but when Jesus touched a leper, they weren't leprous anymore. So did he touch a leper or did he, you know, when did the healing exactly take place? And it was blowing everybody's minds instead of wondering about what a joy it was that lepers were being healed. Jesus healed a man born blind from his birth and the leaders couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle the truth. And they took this guy aside and they said, you know, who's, how did he do it? Who was he? What, he? what happened? And the guy says, you know, I just, you know I'm just I, I'm healed. They brought his parents in, you know, and they're trying to figure out who sinned, you know, the, his parents or him and all this stuff. Finally, the guy said, hey, all I know is that I was blind and now I see. You guys are the teachers. You figure it out. And then they kicked him out of their community. So we don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. You're a wise guy. You're sarcastic. You're a smart aleck. Jesus came and found him again and ministered to him. And so uh, how can we do any less? It's hard for us, harder for us in one sense. uh, But we're filled with the Spirit and we need to look upon people the way Jesus looks upon them. And as we do that, we'll be portraying our God the way we want him portrayed to us as a loving father. Maybe he's disciplining, but, uh, you know, there's going to be a judgment. It's coming. We, you know, the Lord's going to return in His second coming. We can let Him handle the judgment. The Bible says judgment belongs to the Lord, not to us. We want to extend the grace of God. And so let's be gracious in every opportunity. Now in verse 8, Thus says the Lord God, Because Moab and Seir say, Look, the house of Judah is like all the nations. Therefore, behold, I will clear the territory of Moab of cities, of the cities on its frontier, the glory of the country, Beth Jeshemoth, Baal, Maon, and Kirjathim, to the men of the east I will give it as a possession, together with the Ammonites, that the Ammonites may not be remembered among the nations, and I will execute judgment upon Moab, <coughs> excuse me, that they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, if you Google Moabites, you'll encounter what is called the Moabite Stone. The Moabite Stone is an important memorial of alphabetic writing. It was erected by Misha, king of Moab, to record his successful revolt against Israel and give honor to one of their gods. The stone was set up about 850 B.C. The stone was discovered in 1868 by a German missionary named Klein. He was on a visit to the area of Moab and was told by an Arab sheik that there was an inscribed stone lying at the town of Dibon, the ancient city of Dibon. On examining the stone, he found it to be a steel of black basalt, round at the top and nearly four feet high uh, in length and two in width. There were 34 lines of inscription using a Phoenician alphabet. And so it's uh, one of those important archaeological finds that verifies some of the things, names and places and dates that we read in the Bible. Now, we don't require archaeological validation of the biblical accounts, but it is cool when we find it. Uh, not to say that we discount science or archaeology or mathematics or anything that's real like that. I think Christians have a reputation. Uh, I, I think sometimes it's deserved, but mostly it's undeserved. I think the average person, one of their defenses against biblical Christianity is that there's no proof for it. It's all just a bunch of faith. It's a giant leap of faith in the dark, uh, you know, and it's really tough to believe. Uh, And so what's cool is when we have these archaeological finds like the Moabite stone or we saw the city of Jericho uncovered by largely non-believers that verifies the biblical account. 
uh, you know, it, it's a great apologetic to those people. And so when I say we don't need the proof of archaeology, that's all I mean. I mean, we're not waiting. You know, we don't read these stories and wonder, I wonder if there really were Moabites. You know, I wonder if that can be proven. Well, we believe it because the Bible says it and it's an accurate document. God is inspiring the writers of it and he ought to know. And then when things are found, we just we can be a little smug uh, because we knew they would be there all along. And if you get into archaeology, you'll find that many of the early archaeologists in the uh, modern period were Christians, they were missionaries, they were men who believed the Bible accounts and found things because the Bible told them where they were. Uh, and that's how they discovered them. And so it's very interesting stuff. Now, the Moabites claimed that Israel was just another nation and that there was really nothing special about them. They would find out just how special Israel was and is to the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that a nation like the United States must unequivocally agree with every policy of Israel. It does mean that nations ought to stand by her, realizing that Israel really is the apple of God's eye. It means she has a right to exist, to defend her borders, to be defended by her allies. It means we should not be moving towards a more neutral stance in our own policies as a nation. I mean, it doesn't seem to bother anybody that some of these nations, the Iranians, the Palestinian people, for example, have as part of their national motto, basically, the destruction of the nation of Israel. That, that their, their avowed purpose in their... This is their foreign policy towards Israel. We want them destroyed. Uh, and people listen to Mahmoud Ahmadinejad talk about moving the Jews to Alaska... Uh, sending them back to the eastern United States where they would be more happy and things like that. And uh, it's, it's outrageous, isn't it? Don't you, think, don't you find that kind of comment racist and outrageous? And yet these are world leaders who uh, say, yeah, oh, by the way, you know, we, you know, we're meeting. We'd like to improve the, you know, the standard of living for our people. And, oh, and we'd like to destroy the nation of Israel and kill all the Jews. Oh, yeah, okay, sure, let's, you know, let's, let's put that on the agenda. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy talk. And, and, and yet, that's, that's the way things are. Now, as to our application, the church of Jesus Christ has not replaced Israel. God's unconditional promises to Israel stand, and they will be fulfilled. We are a mystery revealed, an altogether new work, coming from the rejection of Jesus by the Jews. We are the bride of Jesus Christ, and thus we too are very, very special. We should therefore maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of truth among believers. We should guard and defend the doctrines that all believers must believe, the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. We should love and look out for one another, even those that are less lovely or lovable among us. We should never forsake the assembling of ourselves together, especially in these last days. Uh, I guess all of this is just to say that the Lord loves His church on the earth. He washes us, He cleanses us with the Word. And we need to hold in high regard that which Jesus loves. And so, uh, it's maybe especially in our generation, maybe it comes around in each generation, I'm not sure, but, uh, uh, you know, the, the church... As, as an organization, I hate to use that word because it's really a living organism, but the church as an organization, that would be the local church, 
uh, it's fallen on hard times in the, in the minds and hearts of a lot of people, and many of them believers. Uh, a lot of people don't want to be connected with any particular local church. Uh, they, they just are out there floating around as Christians. And, and they're Christians. No one doubts that they're Christians. They're, you know, it has nothing to do with their salvation. Uh, but, uh, you, they, you know, when people... It, it'd be like, you know, think back when you got engaged and now you're married and you're in love with your wife. And I mean, how do you feel if people come up and start insulting your wife? I mean, what a, you know, what a weird thing that would be. You know, you're just standing there with a bunch of guys and your wife's over there and the guy says, hey, look at that, that ugly woman over there. Man, she's ugly. And look at her, she's dressed all funny and she's overweight and I, who would want to hang out with her? And, you know, and you're looking for your Kershaw. You know, you can't get your Kershaw out fast enough. I mean, that, there's, those are fighting words, you know. But a lot, you know, we hang around people, oh yeah, the church, you know, this church, Burmy, I didn't like that church, that church did this, that church, and so I don't go to church anywhere. Occasionally I'll go to church, you know, but I don't really go, or if I go, I don't support anything, I don't really need to be a part of that and stuff, and, you know, it's just, you know, the writer to the Hebrews said, he goes, look, if you're in the end times, don't be forsaking assembling yourself together with other believers. Church is important, it's, it's the bride of Jesus Christ. Yes, corporately, you know, internationally, but also locally. Uh, and and uh, we're, we're something special in the world, and, and we ought to preserve that as something special. People ought to be excited about church and about coming together with believers. And uh, we, we need to do everything we can to make it a place of, of joy and wonder and uh, a, a place where people will come and marvel, where they'll meet Jesus Christ uh, as He is presented and as He is lived out in the lives of His people. Verse 12, Thus says the Lord God, because of what Edom did against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and has greatly offended by avenging itself on them, therefore thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom, cut off man and beast from it, and make it desolate. From Timon, Dedan shall fall by the sword. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel, that they may do in Edom according to my anger and according to my fury, and they shall know my vengeance, says the Lord. Now, the Edomites, descended from Esau, were constantly at odds with Israel. The prophet Obadiah provides some insight into the specific example around the time of the Babylonian captivity. In Obadiah 1, 11 through 14, In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother and the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. Now, this seems to be describing the Edomites at the time of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. They aided and abetted the invaders, taking spoil and cutting off the escape of those who were able to flee. God's hand against them was going to be particularly strong. He mentions in these verses he'll even take the lives of their livestock and their animals. It was going to be a complete destruction of Edom. Now, by way of application, I think it encourages us to help those who need help. 
This is one of the big images that you get of the Edomites, that they refused to help. They instead helped the offenders and they took spoil uh, from their brothers and sisters. And this is why I like the ministry of Samaritan's Purse so much. Tragedy strikes, an earthquake, a tsunami, a hurricane. While some Christians stand on the sidelines claiming that the folks affected are receiving the just judgment of God, Franklin Graham and his people rush in to help on a basic human level, always with the gospel to save souls for eternity and lives for time. Uh, and and uh, so that should be our attitude at all times. We know that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to eternal life. I don't know how and when God is judging nations. Uh, there are natural calamities uh, you, because we live in a fallen world. Uh, a lot of things that happen are just the result of the fall. Uh, and, and at the same time, I, I understand that God does judge. He's always judged nations. He will continue to judge nations. Uh, but that's none of my business. And as a Christian, I want to announce, as we saw earlier, the grace of God, not the judgment of God. Uh, and so when something happens, I don't want to stand on the sidelines, as it were, pointing fingers and judging. I want to be among those who rush in to help bringing the gospel so that people uh, can know the Lord. That should be our attitude. Verse 15. Thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines dealt vengefully and took vengeance with a spiteful heart to destroy because of the old hatred. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines and I will cut off the Sherethites and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with furious rebukes and they shall know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Now, the Philistines are the most often mentioned enemy of Israel in the Bible. The Sherethites were a group within the Philistines. It's also a play on words. The sentence reads something like, I will cut off the cutters off. That's what Sherethites means. It was, uh, it, it, in the language, it meant the cutters off, and it referred to a group of people within the Philistines. But uh, God is using a play on words that we miss in our English language. Now, this might be a good time to answer a common question we always get, and that is, why is the Holy Land called Palestine? Well, I want, listen to the following. I, I jotted this down. The name Palestine refers to a region of the eastern Mediterranean coast from the sea to the Jordan Valley and from the southern Negev desert to the Galilee Lake region up in the north. The word itself derives from Plesheth, a name that appears frequently in the Bible and has come into English as Philistine. Plesheth was a general term meaning rolling or migratory. This referred to the Philistine invasion and conquest of the coast from the sea. The Philistines were not Arabs nor Semites. They're most closely related to the Greeks originating from Asia Minor and Greek localities. They did not speak Arabic. They had no connection, ethnic, linguistic, or historical, with Arabia or Arabs. The Philistines reached the southern coast of Israel in several waves. One group arrived in the pre-patriarchal period and settled south of Beersheba in Gerar, where they came into conflict with Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. Another group, coming from Crete, after being repulsed from an attempted invasion of Egypt by Ramses in 1194 B.C., 
seized the southern coastal area where they founded five settlements, Gaza, Ascalon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. In the Persian and Greek periods, foreign settlers, chiefly from the Mediterranean islands, overran the Philistine districts. From the 5th century B.C., following this story in Herodotus, Greeks called the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Philistine Syria, using the Greek language form of the name. In A.D. 135, after putting down the Bar Kokhba revolt, the second major Jewish revolt against Rome, the emperor Hadrian wanted to blot out the name of the Roman Provincia Judea, and so he renamed it Provincia Syria Palestinia, the Latin version of the Greek name, the first use of the name as an administrative name. The name Provincia Syria Palestinia was later shortened to Palestina, from which the modern anglicized Palestine is derived. And so if you follow all that history, you realize that Palestine was a derogatory term given to the Holy Land by the Romans. It's not the name of an indigenous people who have somehow been displaced by the Jews. The Holy Land belongs to the Jews by God's granting it to them. It can also be shown that even in their dispersion, there has always been a Jewish presence in the land. And so the Palestine is, is not the name of, of even the ancient Philistines that used to live there. Uh, and if it was, they have no relation to the Palestinian people that we're talking about today. Uh, and so when people say that, you know, the common understanding is that the Jews somehow invaded Palestine and kicked out the Palestinians and took over this land with help from the British and now the Americans. And uh, that's just not historically accurate. The Jews were the owners of that land. The Philistines were invaders from Greece. Uh, and the Romans are the ones who named it Palestine uh, in order to try to wipe out the idea that the Jews had any right to the land. Now, in these verses, the Philistines are described as having a spiteful heart and an old hatred. Devotionally, I can see that referring to my old heart, my old nature, the flesh. And just as the Philistines were a constant enemy to Israel, so is my flesh in constant uh, warfare against me, warring against the Spirit of God and against my new nature as a born-again person. And so it will until the coming of the Lord for me, either at death or in the rapture. Now, in our prophecy update on Sunday, I talked about major shifts in U.S.-Israeli relations. As a nation, we are on a course to withdraw our support from Israel. It's a bad course to be on, especially in these last days when so much prophecy is converging just as the Bible predicted that it would. If there was ever a time to support Israel, uh, these are the times to do it because we are in the last days uh, prophesied in the Bible. Uh, and um, what's going to happen to the United States, what our place is in prophecy, I can't say. Uh, I can say that our nation is not mentioned. Uh, it bothers me. It bothers all of us, you know, as we come upon the, the celebration of the, our independence and all that. And I believe that this is a great nation. Uh, you know, people are try, still trying to get here, right? They still want to come here and live here. And uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, and and uh, it's a great nation. Uh, but you just can't find it by any stretch of the imagination in prophecy. 
Uh, we're none of the people that people say that we are in prophecy. Uh, and so uh, something's going to happen. Uh, you'd speculate. And, of course, my speculation is that what's going to happen is the rapture of the church. Uh, and uh, I just think that our country would be devastated at the rapture of the church. Uh, you know, just the whole world is going to feel the effect, uh, except maybe Las Vegas. But, uh, no, that's not true. There's Christians there. But, uh, you know, it, it's going to be an amazing, uh, uh, terrifying, devastating moment in time when millions and upon millions of people worldwide di- uh, disappear. Uh, and, and not to be sensational, but airplanes are going to fall out of the sky. Trains are going to collide. There's going to be car crashes like crazy. Uh, I mean, just imagine what might happen just at any moment in time as things are happening when um, you know millions of people suddenly disappear who are operating machinery and doing various things. Uh, and I, I do think that uh, even in our weaknesses and with all of our turning away from God in this country, that there are a lot of Christians in this nation uh, and it will, it will pretty much leave us ineffective uh, as a government and as a military and all of that. Uh, and, and uh, you know... That's one possible scenario. Leading up to that, however, I'd say, hey, let's not pull away from Israel. Uh, it's, it's the right thing to do, the moral thing, the ethical thing to defend uh, those people, uh, that nation and its right to exist, but uh, it also has some prophetic uh, impact as well. Meantime, we need to be the people that are defeating the flesh, strengthening the church, helping those in distress, especially with the gospel, as we walk always in the grace of God, extending His mercy, uh, letting all people know that He is God. Amen? Amen.